people will ask me, you know, well, how can violence be a gift? The short answer is what better gift can you give someone else than freedom from exploitation and manipulation by physical means? That's a skill set that we need to carry with us because there's always going to be people out there who will hurt you or those you love if you're vulnerable to it and you give them the chance. So we need to be prepared for that. Get ready to tune in to stories of average men striving for greatness to become the leaders that are needed in their homes, in their career, and their communities. This is the Brotherhood of Fatherhood podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Brotherhood of Fatherhood podcast. I'm pretty excited. Today, I have with me Matt Thornton. He is a fifth degree black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And if you have uh, ever heard of SBG, in fact, if you were a part of my event last year in Montana, you've heard of SBG. In fact, you stepped foot in one. This man is the origin, the reason that SBG exists. He has over 70 locations worldwide, and he has produced champion MMA fighters as well as world-class self-defense and law enforcement instructors. He lives in Oregon in uh, the old stomping ground of my youth, and he's got kids, and he's married. <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks How you doing, me. man? I'm yeah. great. Thanks for having me, Scott. Appreciate it. We were talking before this. You, you have five kids, right? Five kids with one on the way. Yeah. And your oldest is 24, if I remember correctly. 27. 27. So you yeah. have a like a 27-year Yeah. Gap. So I've got two full-grown boys, men, um, from a previous marriage. And then my wife and I, we married, uh, too early for math, but, uh, 14 years ago. And then she and I have three kids and another on the way. So to- all total, I have six. That's awesome. That That's crazy, man. <laughs> Kudos. A lot of guys I, uh, get on the podcast, have a lot of kids or aspire to have a lot of kids. So you're there and, uh, y- you're, you're doing amazing things. 70 locations is no small task. So I'd love to hear, you know, a little quick. We have some, first of all, we have some yeah. really cool, important stuff we're going to talk about. So guys, like this isn't going to be, it, it's going to be awesome. Just like, if you love jujitsu, great. We're going to talk about that stuff, but we're going to talk about some super important things in our culture and society around right now around safety and uh, the role that men play in the family and in protecting protect, our protective role. But uh, what, let's, I mean, anytime I get somebody on here who's done a business like this, I gotta, I gotta get some, some wisdom and hear the story. Sure. I talk a little bit about it in the book. I was, um, only child. My, I, my brother wasn't born until I was 16 years old and I had left the house at that point. I, I moved out of the house when I was about 15 and became a bit of a delinquent. But I had always been super interested in what works and what doesn't work in martial arts. And I'd gotten in a lot of fights. I'd been bullied a little bit and then wound up, you know, becoming somebody who would who would instigate and get in a lot of fights. And and I had this kind of overwhelming desire to know what works and what doesn't know in a what doesn't work in a fight. That's what motivated me. And to this day, fifty I'm fifty-four now. I'm still that's still my main question of in almost a scientific sense of what I'm fascinated by. And so I started uh, training martial arts, went into the military for a while. And one of the things I figured out pretty quickly is most martial arts don't work. Martial arts are filled with bullshit. So with the exception of like religion and alternative medicine, it's pretty hard to find a area that has more woo-woo in it than martial arts. And so what I discovered pretty quickly is the martial arts that work 
are always sports. That's the one thing they have all in common. So if we look at modern day MMA, um, you're going to see boxing and kickboxing and Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and Judo and Sambo and anything that's a sport can have application. And the reason behind that was because sports have an opponent process. They have it's a, it's about a meritocracy because you care about the results. And anytime we care about the results, we use a form of meritocracy. And through that opponent process, you develop your skill and you work your way up. So that became kind of my insight. I call that an understanding of what works and what doesn't work in martial arts, like a single word aliveness. And then I think when people understand what aliveness means, then they can never be fooled by bullshit martial arts again. So one aspect of my book is explaining that to people. So, you know, my book's not a fighting technique book, but if somebody reads the book and they were interested in pursuing combat sports, which I definitely encourage throughout for everybody, there's a roadmap there for figuring out, you know, where you want to go and what's real and what's not real. And around that time, I ran into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I met a guy named Fabio Santos and then eventually Hickson Gracie. Uh, and this was before the UFC. And I had one of those experiences that all of us had when we first run into it where, you know, they said, hey, try and beat me up and then, you know, just take down and mount. And it looked like UFC won, right? I was boxing five, six days a week at that time. And I realized I could do nothing with these guys as soon as they got their arms around me were on the ground. And I instantly fell in love with it. I went back and told the guys at the kind of kickboxing school that I was teaching at in a martial arts school about my findings. I was super excited. They did not share my enthusiasm and, and weren't really interested. And so I actually opened up a very small school, which became the first straight blast gym, just because I needed people to train with. My only reason for starting doing, I didn't have any idea of being a coach or being a teacher. I just wanted to train. And there was literally no, there's no other schools. There was no jujitsu or MMA at the time. So that's how it started. And I just wound up kind of becoming the first school like that in Oregon. And then from there, I put out some instructional videos that became pretty well known around the world. And people started contacting me and wanting to train with me. And, and it kind of what I was saying about what works and what doesn't work resonated with them. And that became the beginning of SBG. So I wound up meeting uh, John Cavanaugh, who runs SBG Ireland, of course, is Conor McGregor's coach, and Carl Tanswell and Adam Singer, and a, a long list of the early SBG coaches, you know, 25 years ago, almost 30 years ago. And they, we've been together ever since. And together we kind of organically grew this organization. I never had any, I never had any intention of doing this for a living. I never thought I could do it for a living. And I definitely had no intention of starting an organization and having, you know, dozens of schools. So it all happened kind of organically, uh, just because I was pursuing, you know, what I felt like I had to pursue a question that I had to answer for myself about what works and what doesn't. That's really intriguing. I, I mean, to, you said you have over 70 locations now. Um, I mean, that's incredibly impressive. And I, I would say that there has to be a really deep seated passion and love and absolute giving in order to get to that place. For sure. I mean, now when I say 70 locations, those are 70 affiliated locations and some of right. them are, are big schools. So, you know, my school here in Portland will have 700 and something students. We have 
several oh. schools in Atlanta and in in the South in Birmingham and in Atlanta and uh, Athens, Georgia. And some of them have close to a thousand. I think the Atlanta wow. SPG just, just hit a thousand. And then of course, um, John's school in Ireland, I have no idea, but he's probably around eight or 900 students at least. But then we also have a bunch of schools that are just smaller and some of them specialize. Like for example, we'll have groups that specialize primarily in just training the law enforcement aspect of what we do and training police officers, other groups that are for, focused more on their MMA fight team and, and then bigger gyms like my own where we, we do everything. Um, so it's a big tent, but as far as, you know, big full-time schools that have hundreds of students, I'd have to count those up, but you know, we have at least probably 15 or 20 of those now. That's incredible. I, I was telling you also beforehand that I was able to um, actually hold a seminar for my group of men at SBG uh, Kalispell. And I've since visited a few times. I have a good buddy there, Alex, Alex and uh, he's very into, he's very into jiu-jitsu. And I will walk into those places. And I, I think this is, you know, a testament to what you've created. Man, the energy is, uh, Matt, the energy is crazy. I don't know if it's like that everywhere, but I'll walk in. The last time I walked in, there were just kids everywhere waiting for their class and parents talking. And uh, it was really interesting because you can tell that there is a, a real awareness. I walk in, they've never seen me before. And it was very interesting, w- welcoming, but also I could tell these kids are ready to kick my ass. If they need to. <laughs> but, but what I've seen is just this community that's unlike, you know, me being from the CrossFit world, it's, it's different. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. I was just incredibly impressed. And I think that community just draws people in and, and you become a part of the thing. But this combat sport, this ability to have a skill in which you are protecting yourself as well as others in situations mm-hmm. is um, very appealing. It's very appealing to me. I, I talk to men about your readiness mm-hmm. the, as a leader in your family you know, your role is to be ready in all sorts of things, whether that's disarming, just noticing, or, you know, if it reverts or if it has to go to violence, what does that look like? What does it mean? Mm-hmm. And I know you're kind of, you're really passionate about that, but um, I don't know. I just wanted to say like, just stepping into at least one of these gems, it was, it was an incredible, it was an incredible sight to see. Well, I, and, I appreciate um, that. I, and I'm proud of that. And I think if you were to travel and, and you, you know, you're always welcome to go to any of the SPG gyms as you travel around, I think you would find a similar experience no matter which one you went to. So I, I, to us, the word we use to encapsulate all of that is culture. And to me and to the organization, and I know the other head coaches that uh, teach full time, the single most important thing to us is the culture. Um, which is a big word, but is it, it, it describes everything you're talking about. Because to get good at what we do, you have to fail over and over and over again. It's not just okay to fail. It's an essential part of that process. And when you're failing, you're literally putting yourself in very vulnerable positions with another human being who could hurt you. And you have to be willing to be vulnerable, be vulnerable on the mat to lose and to have those kind of experiences over and over and over again to be uncomfortable so that you can grow and you need to have an environment where everybody feels safe. Not that, not unchallenging. It's very challenging, but safe. And uh, if you don't have that, everything else kind of falls apart. Uh, and so that, that really is a key to, to that experience. So um, you walking in there and feeling like you were welcome would be the single most important thing 
for me, and I know also for Travis, who's done a great job building those gyms in Montana, that is our number one goal when we have people come into mm-hmm. the location. Yeah, I was rather bummed I don't have one here in my location, to tell you the truth. Where are you? And I sent messages. I'm in, I'm in a, a suburb of Dallas, so oh, okay. 30 minutes north of Dallas. And I sent a message to all my guys showing them, you know, uh, my friend Alex, who trains with Travis and some others. And I'm like, here's all the places around me. Where do I go? And they're like, where you just really got to go. And they talked me through that, that process. Yeah. But, um, you know, there's comfort in knowing what you've seen and, and what I love, I I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think it's incredibly important. What I love is that when I go visit my friend, Alex, his, his, he's got kids, he's got little kids. And then there's these little kids running around and they're talking, they're using this language. They're using, you know, oh, today we're doing takedown. You know, I don't yeah. know. I don't yeah, know yeah. the language. And it's yeah. just so cool. They're completely immersed in it. Yep. But here's what I, I saw as uh, the youth, the confidence. They yeah. actually have this confidence about them. And it's not cockiness. Let's no. be very clear of the difference here. But they actually have a confidence. And then for I've noticed a lot of them will just approach you and talk to you in mm-hmm. a very appropriate manner. And that comes from a confidence that is really hard to build early on. And I think this has been why jujitsu now, of course, I, I don't know if it's growing more now than it ever has, but it's it definitely is. on my radar. Yeah, for sure. But I think that's a huge part of it. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's the thing that gives me the most satisfaction about my job. It's great to see the big wins and, um, you know, the medals and all that kind of stuff. And that it's important too. We, we all want to win, but it's those moments of seeing people come in and be transformed. You know, I've seen kids that have come into the gym who were on the spectrum a little bit and couldn't make eye contact with you, couldn't hold a conversation, could barely be in the room. And six months to a year, year and a half later of doing jujitsu, they're walking right up to people, shaking their hands, looking them in the eyes. A lot of times they're teaching class now and leading, leading the other kids in class. And the transformation is enormous. And I think that's the the most beautiful part about jujitsu is that it has the the capability of of doing that in a really healthy way. I agree. The thing that I think is hard for people outside of that circle to understand is you talk about things like MMA, mm-hmm. and all they see is blood and knuckles and kicking and and violence, and they're not seeing the other side. So there's this this gap that must be filled mm-hmm. from this is what you're seeing. Yes. Uh, these are very highly trained, very fit individuals who want to do this. And, but this is where you start and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the art of jujitsu is it's almost submission. Is that correct? Like, so yeah. if something is going wrong, you have the ability to keep someone from causing further harm. Right. If, unless you're a police officer or you're protecting someone else, if you're involved in some kind of altercation outside with some kind of predator, then obviously you want to create space, make space and want to avoid the situation altogether. And that's why we want to be aware of our surroundings and all of those things. And I talk about all that in the book, but if it gets to the point where it's physical and you can no longer leave the situation, by definition, the other person is hanging on to you. And the moment that person grabs you and makes contact with you, they're going to be in our world, in the jujitsu world, and somebody who's skilled in jujitsu can then control that situation and control that other person, not because of pain, 
not because they're hurting them and, and asking them to stop or not because they knock them unconscious, but because you're literally controlling their body. They're not going to be able to move or go anywhere unless you want them to. And then if you decide they still present a threat, you can gently choke them and they're going to go unconscious. No matter what controlled substance is flowing through their, their bloodstream, no matter how big they are, no matter how strong they are, when you apply a well-executed blood choke, that's the end of the fight. And so jujitsu has in, incredible power that way. And, you know, with the kids, you were mentioning MMA. We don't do some of the, some of the gyms will have variations of MMA programs for the kids where the striking is mostly on the equipment, but with the kids, it's like 99%. It's based, we're doing jujitsu and the kids are pretty much just grappling. And the great thing about that too, is there's no head trauma. You know, I don't want my kids to box because just the traumatic brain injury. Right. And, and it's, yeah, it's just a super effective, you know, my two daughters train and I have another daughter, like I said, will be on the way in a couple months. And, and it's not option. It's not optional for them. For them, we treat it like math or English. And my wife's from Iceland and the analogy she used is that everybody in Iceland has to learn how to swim because they're on an Island, <laughs> which makes sense. And, uh, I view jujitsu that way. And I'm grateful that we have great coaches and my daughters are really enjoying it and kind of thriving in it now. But one way or another, uh, I would be bringing them to class and having them engage in it because that's how important I think it is to be able to keep them safe, to teach them about their boundaries, to be able to have the skill to be assertive and to defend those boundaries when necessary and understanding what it means to be assertive in a healthy way. All those things are lessons that you learn in a very real, very visceral way doing jujitsu. Yeah. That's, I think that the things you just talked about are, it should be a point that parents are putting, they should be intentionally getting their kids involved in this. That's yes. kind of the next question because you've done, you've seen so much volume of people coming through the doors. You alone yeah. have a very, very big gym. If the, if jujitsu is not a part of the, like the family culture, which I have seen, if mm -hmm. it's not, and someone wants to get maybe their middle schooler or, you know, teen involved, but there, there's that, you know, heel digging in of like, this is weird. It's different. Have you seen tactics or, or things that have worked in those scenarios? Cause I, I mean, I have, I have a teenage, I have a 15 year old boy and I talk to him probably every week. I'm like, Hey, we need to go do jujitsu together. Yeah. And yeah. I know he would be he would yeah. be, he's built for it. I mean, I'm like, dude, you're going to, you're going to crush it. You're going to have, you're going to be crushed, yeah. but you're going to get good. It's going to take a lot of work, but he, it's that fear, right? Like, have yeah. you seen some successful things for anybody in there? That's like, Hey, I want my kids to do that, but they're fighting tooth and nail. Yeah, for sure. So the first thing I would say is you need to have a school or a gym with that, that word we used before culture that you trust. So you'd want to make sure you went in there and watched and saw how they dealt with the kids and what, what the entire morale of the entire place was and make sure you felt comfortable the way you did when you came into the Kalispell SPG. And you think, okay, this is a place I would want to have my kids. And then you've got to encourage them to come in and try it. And I've done both of these. I did both these because like I mentioned, I have two older boys from a previous marriage and this has been my only job for 30 something years. So my kids have never seen me in any other job, but I didn't want them. I didn't want my boys to wind up not liking it because their dad made them do it and because it's dad's job. And so I didn't push it on them. I didn't make them go. I brought them a couple times. And then when they put up a bit of a fuss and wanted to do other stuff, I let them off the hook. And I deeply regret that now, actually. my One of my sons, Liam, uh, came back to it, which I'm 
super happy about when he was about 18, 19, and he's been training since, and he's 26, seven now. And, uh, he teaches at my gym and he teaches kids class and he's doing great. So I'm really grateful for that. But I realized that he should have been doing it since he was five or six. And so with my daughters, you know, my wife and I talked about it and we said, it's just, it's just something you have to do. And, and we treat it, like I said, exact, like they're homeschooling, like a math lesson mm-hmm. or anything else. And with positive reinforcement, you know, if, if they're having a tough day and they don't want to go, we'll talk to them about it. Why don't you want to go? Is there, maybe there's a kid there that's giving them some social drama or something. We'll have a conversation and then explain to them how much better they're going to feel after they go, especially if they don't want to go now, it's going to be even more better after and then you know take them out to get ice cream or whatever and i just try and keep it totally positive all the time but the main reason you know it's not me and it's not going to be my wife that uh, keep the girls here in the gym the main reason they're here is because we've got great staff so you 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 don't have to have great kids coaches and that takes a particular type of person and once you have those great kids coaches in place the kids are going to want to come back because jujitsu is addictive. It really is. And it's addictive for men. It's addictive for women and it's addictive for kids. And once they come in and get a feel for how good it feels to, to wrestle with another human being and who's not cooperating with you and they're going to want to be there over and over again in most cases. Yeah, that's great. That's good advice. I like the analogy of like, it's like homeschool. This is, Mm -hmm. this is, curriculum you have to do yeah and you know i've noticed having owned a gym for years my kids growing up in the gym there was a time when i tried to force them to do it but what i found is that i had to live it my wife had to live it and when we lived it they came into the fold and were they they saw the advantages we never pushed it down their throat so there's like this fine balance right but they're they're so dedicated it's it's crazy both my boys just work out all the time on their own very self-motivated but I attribute that to the the years of modeling and yeah. talking positively about it and not up. So there's this like at the early age, I think you push them into it. Like they're yeah. like, this is when you absolutely assert your will as a, as an adult, there's yeah. no question in my mind. Yeah. So that's awesome. Um, I, I really want to cover you. Like I'm, I'm ecstatic to get a copy of your book. I, re- I really want to cover it. The title is the gift of violence. Yes. Gift of violence. Right. And I think, I think that's going to, that that alone is going to uh, draw some interesting comments, bit, I'm sure. But it's a bit um, provocative. Yeah, yeah. Did it take you long to figure out the title of that? No, actually, it was uh, it was another um, person in the industry that suggested the title to me. I had uh, lessons in violence, and I had gone through a couple other working titles. I took a long time to write this book, so I had a lot of conversations with people about it and she mentioned the gift of violence and, and, uh, for the very reasons that we talked about, it's, it's a provocative title that catches people's attention, Mm -hmm. but it's also, I think very true. And people, people will ask me, you know, well, how can violence be a gift? Um, and there's a, there's long answers to that related to, uh, who we are as animals. But the short answer is what better gift can you give someone else? than freedom from exploitation and manipulation by physical means. So you're giving people the ability to maintain their own freedom and sovereignty and not let someone else put their hands on them unless they want them to. And I think that's something that everybody, male and female, that's a skill set that you know we need to carry with us because there's always going to be people out there who will hurt you or those you love if you're vulnerable to it and you give them the chance. So we need to be prepared for that. 
Yeah, that's that's incredible. I think the gift is it's like a future gift too. Mm-hmm. Like you're helping them avoid situations that could be really bad. Yeah. You know, it could be the gift of life. Absolutely. Honestly. Yeah, that'd be another uh, that'd be another yeah. way to put it. Yeah. So I kind of want to, I kind of want to jump into there, but I have to ask this question because it keeps coming back to my head as I'm looking at your logo and I know I have a, I have a, like a, a, a shirt, an SBG shirt. It's got like, I should have wore it today. It's got like a screaming gorilla on it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, straight blast gym. I want to know the origin of that name. But, uh, this is just a small diversion because the real meat is what I'm ready to get into, but I want to know the okay. origin of that name and then why, why the gorilla? Sure. Sure. Uh, those are questions. A lot of people ask me about that. So when I, at the time I ran into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, back a couple of years before the first UFC, I was putting, I was on a path of trying to become a professional boxer. So I was uh, being, I was an amateur boxer. I was in the gym, boxing gym five days a week. And I was also teaching a martial art called Jeet Kundo Concepts, which has its origin through Bruce Lee and Dan Asano. And the reason why I gravitated towards Jeet Kune Do concepts was because the rhetoric of what they talked about made sense to me. They talked about Bruce Lee when he when he was alive would talk about you need to fight at all ranges, stand up, clinch, and ground. He would call it boxing, kickboxing, trapping, and grappling. Um, but I had been in enough fights to realize, yeah, you need to be able to fight. You need to be able to fight on the ground. You need to be able to fight in the clinch. It's not just about punching and kicking. And there was a kind of a utilitarian ideal to it. Uh, it's a saying that Bruce Lee took actually from Mount Setung, but absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, add what is specifically your own. All of that made good sense to me. So I went into it and I actually became an instructor in it, but I became kind of disillusioned because a lot of what they were doing was also bullshit. And about the same time I became disillusioned with it was when I discovered Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And so I realized I had to open up my own school and open up a gym and everybody else around me at the time were the, they would have names like Portland Martial Arts Academy or Martial Arts Institute or things like that. And in my mind, I was envisioning a place where you're going to go in and you're going to be working out and you're going to get covered in sweat and then you're going to leave a gym, you know, G-Y-M is what it is. It's not a institute or an academy. It is a gym. And, and when we're going to go in there, we're actually going to train. And so I use the word gym. And then the second thing we were going to do is I'm going to take the entire curriculum and everything I know, and we're going to pressure test everything. And we are going to see what works and what doesn't work. And one of the few kind of iconic techniques that we kind of kept from that latter day era was called a straight blast, which was a kind of a form of chain punching. Uh, we modified it to a more older boxing version, which was kind of made famous in the early UFCs by Vitor Belfort. So if you go back and watch Vitor Belfort's early fights, where I think he was calling himself Vitor Gracie, he knocks out Tank Abbott and a few other people with a kind of a running jab cross. So a very interesting, kind of very powerful technique, fairly unique. And that was one of the only things that we wound up keeping. You know, I threw away all the stick and knife training and a lot of that, but we would still wind up using that. So I said, okay, we'll call it straight blast gym. And the, and the idea is we're going to take everything and we're going to test it. And, and the, our laboratory is going to be the gym. And my first shirt, I was looking to make my first gym shirt. I saw an ad for uh, wrestling head guards in a, in a, mm-hmm. like a collegiate wrestling magazine. And it was a picture of a silverback gorilla with uh, wrestling ear guards on. And I thought, well, that's just a cool picture. So I had an artist do a pink, uh, 
ink and pen version for it for my first shirt. That was the sum total of my reasons. I just thought it was a cool picture. And from that day forward, people would come in and bring me gorillas <laughs> and everything was yeah. had kind of a gorilla uh, theme to it. And then one of my students, uh, Yulon Moore, drew uh, this guy right here, the gorilla's yep. arms crossed, which has kind of become iconic and has been worn by, you know, Forrest Griffin when he fought and, and Connor and everybody else. And and that's kind of what the, the gym, that's our true logo for the gym. People recognize that symbol everywhere. So that's how it started. That's great. That's great. I always wondered, and I wanted to make sure that we co we covered that, but I I knew we were going to be running right into some stuff, but I'm glad I asked because that kind of shows your rich history in exploring some of the other, the other avenues, the other, the other ways to do martial arts out there. So that's, that's actually a really cool story. And I mean, who can't relate with a silverback gorilla exactly, as far yeah. as like a force, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. So I dig it. I love the shirt I have with like, I just, just it's like this power and raw energy type vi vision. That's really cool. So now let's get to what I'm really, really excited about talking. You just, you told me, I said, Hey man, what do you want to, what do you want to make sure you cover? And you made this comment about violence and then the importance of fathers. Yeah. So I, and you're covering this in your book. Yeah. Like I said, cannot wait to read it because I think I'm going to relate to a ton of it, but I, I want to, I just want to like lift the gates open for you and let you go at it on this one. Sure. Yeah. It plays a big role in my book as I, as I think um, you'll see when you read it, anybody kind of sees when they read it, it's not a public policy book. It's a book about people being able to protect themselves from interpersonal violence, interpersonal violence, by the way, kills about four times as many people every year as all the wars that we have. So yeah. by, by that, I mean crime and assault and things like that. And I, and the, the main point of the book is to teach people how to be able to navigate that kind of violence and have a healthy relationship to the topic that's neither phobic or, uh, uh, or glamorizes it in some way and be able to protect yourself. But along the way, I talk about, you know, where violence comes from, why people use violence, who uses violence, who's a threat, who's not a threat. And I go through all the data on that. It's very data. Heavy. There's huge, you know, 150, 200 pages. There's a huge section of citations. So, you know, probably a third of the book is the footnotes related to the citations, studies and all kinds of other things. Going back to fatherhood, when I began the process of writing the book, the first thing I did was I wanted to look at all the data as it relates to who commit crimes, what kind of crimes. Uh, I wanted to, to get a really good handle on the demographic. And when you do that, and anybody can do this, anybody that's listening to me here can do this. You can go to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. You can go to the FBI. CDC keeps uh, homicide data. If you're talking specifically about police shootings, you have the Washington Post has a website that they've kept. For a long time. So the data is available, thankfully. I don't know how much longer it will be, but it is. And anybody that wants to go look at it can look at it. And there's a few things that are going to jump out at you immediately when you look at it. Uh, the first one is the very obvious one that the vast majority of violence, with the very few exceptions of particular crimes, is committed by men. We all know that. So it's, it's a, essentially a male problem. The second thing that jumps out at you is age. So if you're looking at a graph of the average attackers, you're going to see it begin to start to tick up at about 14, 15, and it's going to peak at about 19, 20, 21, and then it drops off like this. 
And so the biggest category is young men between the ages of 15 and 22. And if you want to narrow that down even more, you say 17, 18 to 21, and that's going to be the largest group. And that I, I can't overestimate how important that is because it's, if you remove those particular types of attackers from the data, you know, the vast majority of violence is just gone. The third thing that's going to stand out to anybody that looks at it is there are massive discrepancies, differences in the rate of crimes committed based on race. There's just no way around it. So you, you have, uh, the, the number one killer for young black American men in the United States is young black American men. So the number one killer for a young uh, white American is suicide or drug overdoses are ticking up because of fentanyl and things like that. Same thing with Hispanics. Young black American males, it's homicide. And it's not the police. They're killing each other. And so you're going to have a percentage of the population, we say, the black community is about 13, 14% of the American population. You divide that in half for males and say six or 7%. And then you talk about that age group I'm talking about when we're going from like 15 to 22. And you're talking about a two, maybe 3% uh, group that is responsible mm-hmm. for anywhere from 50 to 80% of all violent crime. That's not me saying that. That's not, uh, that's just the data. So I, and again, I, I, I tell everyone, don't take my word for it. Look it up. Now, once you see that, you're going to want to know why. And the, m- my book is not about why. That would be a much bigger book. But I certainly don't think it has anything to do with race. And I, and so the first thing you start to control for is you start to control for income and you start to control for, um, you know, unemployment, education levels, you start to control for all those things. And when you do, you can still see these big gaps between the different communities. Even with income, you know, one group over 100,000 per year and another group below 20,000 per year, but in the over 100,000 per year, still higher rates of violence. So it, it starts, the, the income aspect of it starts to fall apart. And there's a lot of mythology going around, particularly from the left, political left, about a lot of the violent crime we we see going on right now being because people are hungry or, or, uh, you know, they need food. Like it's Les Miserables, right? Like AOC talking about this and in, in what's going on in New York, it, it could not be more wrong. That's not what's going on. So it leaves you with uh, the question that anybody is going to ask after looking at the data for five or 10 minutes, which is why. And after I started to break it down and look at all the different categories, it became clear to me that the, the one factor that we can correlate almost perfectly with rates of violent crime in a, gu- a given community is out-of-wedlock birth rates. So if you look at the out-of-wedlock birth rates, for example, in the black community as compared to the white community or the Asian community or the Native American community, you will see almost perfect correlation between fatherless young men and violent crime. So what's going on there is when we talk about um, – the, the shootings we're seeing in Baltimore and Chicago and St. Louis every day, every weekend that the media prop barely covers, but you'll have 20, 24 shootings every weekend in Chicago with even little, little children being shot. That violence every day is being committed by fatherless young men who were killing mostly fatherless, other fatherless young men or anybody that's in the crossfire over petty issues related to status. 
someone stepped on my shoes, someone looked at me the wrong way. And then the spiral of violence starts to take off and take over. And so that's just, you know, I can't, I couldn't write a book about violence and not talk about what it composes 50 or 60% of all violence in America. And it's not just America, the out of wedlock birth rates, as I talk about, you know, we can, we can talk about Scandinavia and you're going to see the same, you're going to see the same thing at, at play. When you see the high rates of crime in Scandinavia, you're going to also find, you know, all the problems with fatherless homes. And I'm talking about homicide. If we start talking about rape and assault and burglary, and it's just all of those crimes. And so the, the major need to have fathers in the home kind of stands out. There's a story I tell about uh, elephants in Pelansburg, South Africa, to kind of illustrate that point. But uh, I don't want to go on too much. I'll stop right there. But that was one of the major conclusions. And I, I just point it out in the book because I want people to be aware of the reality of violence as it is and so that they can protect themselves from it. But from a public policy standpoint, if I was involved in making public policy, I would be really concerned about any economic incentives or things that we create or things that we do that discourage marriage and in some way encourage uh, young girls to have kids out of wedlock. Because as long as that's going on, we're going to constantly need to fill those communities with police officers. First of all, I uh, would like to thank you and commend you for publicly saying that and putting it in your book. We need to hear this loud and clear. The 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 I to use a very overused word right now, but the narrative is very wrong yeah. that is being spewed out there. It, the the fingers are being pointed in absolutely the wrong direction. And this is you were so you so eloquently put that this is based on data. There isn't a, a bias on my like for me bias on race or you know ethnicity or socioeconomics like i, I don't i don't know but right. if you look at that data it's very clear it has been for years yeah um, it's, it's very clear i want to add one thing too i should mention if we're talking about interracial crime so uh, white people hurting black people black people hurting white people that kind of thing those crimes are rare and i don't want people to think that there's an epidemic of you know young black males killing young white males or anything like that's not what's going on it's actually a very tiny percentage and the majority of the reason for that is most people are killed by people that look just like that most black people are murdered by black people white people are murdered by white people so we're talking about a tiny if we talk about interracial crime we're talking about a very tiny percentage of those homicide statistics but even there the black on the the majority of the assaults are black on white or black hispanic and the category majority offender is still young black males. Yeah, that's which is that's, the opposite uh, of what you hear in the media. Oh, it's very opposite. The, the like I said, the figures being pointed in all the wrong directions. Mm -hmm. And there's so many there's so many other studies that you know you haven't covered in here. Just even about I think Jordan Peterson talks about the development of this one thing in fatherless homes, and it 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 has an indication for violence and there's just so many correlations out mm -hmm. there it's undeniable mm -hmm. it's absolutely undeniable so what's mm -hmm. the answer i'm asking you a huge question but obviously if you're going to address this in your book you're, you're you're going to have some sort of something that you have to say about it <laughs> yeah well the book is focused on advice for an individual so you reading the book wanting to keep yourself and those you love safe and so the 
the solutions I provide are individual solutions. How do you handle these kind of situations in your own life? What do you do if you live in a neighborhood where a lot of those kind of things are going on? What do you need to be aware of? What do you need to pay attention to? What needs to be your game plan to get yourself out of that environment? So I talk about that. In terms of big public policy, you know, I'm, that's not the the point of the book. And, and so I don't get into that at all. But what I would say, and I, I do mention this in the book, and I point it out because I think it does point the direction of what should be done and what shouldn't be done, is that it hasn't always been like this. So out-of-wedlock birth rates have not always been like this. If we go back to the 40s and the 50s and even the very early 60s, the out-of-wedlock birth rate in the black community and the white community was very similar. They were within a point or two of each other, and it was relatively low. And right around 1963, if you graph it out and you look at it, you'll see it start to go like this. Um, and it, for for everyone, for the white community, for the black community, but in particular in the African-American community, it went from, you know, teens to low 20s to now it's sitting somewhere in the high 70s, you know, 70 some odd percentage of um, young black kids born out of wedlock. But if you dig down even deeper, and we go into those neighborhoods in Chicago or Baltimore, or New Orleans, the places where they'll have literally uh, criminologists will measure homicide per 100,000. And you'll have 53, 54, 55 per 100,000 homicides, which is more violence than you'll get in El Salvador or Colombia. In those communities, the out of wedlock birth rate is going to be in the, in the mid to high 90s. So you've got 90 some odd person, you know, 95% of these kids walking around with no male role models, no male father in the home, whatever, so to speak. And so the question I ask in the book, and I think the question that, that people are left with, anybody that's left with that studies this or looks at the data is what happened in 1963? So I don't get into that because that'd be another book, but I do think that that's where people have to look because something happened. And something went wrong there. And if we find out what it is and we take an honest look at it, then maybe we have a chance of not repeating it and at least not making the same mistakes we made before, which is exactly what I see going on right now with the current administration. What I see being proposed is just more of the same, which is just going to make everything worse. Mm -hmm. Agreed. Wholeheartedly agreed. Let's talk about just in the few minutes we have left. Um, you know, the, uh, my audience is, is interesting. It's, it's a lot of fathers, but mm. there's a lot of mothers in here as well. Yeah. So what does this book have to offer? And, you know, why pick it up? Because I, like from what I've heard from you, it's an absolute must read. But I want to hear from you, you know, what you, you say about that. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. One thing I'll say, just to be clear, and I think most people that are listening to this conversation will hopefully realize that, but occasionally I will get people who, I'll get some pushback related to single mothers they'll say well my mother was great and she was a single mother oh, yeah. as as in some way of me pointing out how important fathers are in some way or another denigrates the jobs that single mothers do it's actually just the opposite i'm saying the opposite i'm saying single mothers do an amazing job because it's a really hard job it's a hard job to raise a kid any you know fatherless if you're a father raising kids without your wife or without a mom a mom raising kids without the dad, it's the toughest job in the world. So it's actually uh, far from being an insult. The book itself is for everybody. So I talk about things you want your kids to know, how to keep your kids safe, what you teach your kids to keep them safe. And I talk a lot about what 
women need to know who who attacks women, why women get attacked, where they get attacked. It's a little bit different. So the the things women have to worry about and the things uh, men have to worry about in some ways are the same, but in other ways, they're very different. And women have, I talk quite a bit about what I call primal instincts, but our evolutionarily evolved instincts within us to know when danger is near. This is the single greatest tool any of us have to keep us safe, male, female, child. We're this amazing, unbroken chain of reproductive success all the way back. Every one of our ancestors had kids who lived to have kids, which is incredible. And they did that by being very savvy, very wise, very good judges of character, and sometimes having to defend themselves or kill people. And that's how we got here today to be this way. And so everyone has that in them. What you have to do is you have to learn how to hear it, how to listen to it, and especially not begin rationalizing it away when you start having mm. this sub-vocalization and you're trying to rationalize away your feelings because you don't want to think badly of someone or you don't want to whatever. You don't want to be that person. That's when you're in danger the most. And this is true of women and it is true of men. And I will say that women's instincts are a little bit different as well. And so women will sometimes we'll just call it creepy vibe for lack of a better term, but they will get a creepy vibe from a male that I might not get, right? I'm not going to get the same signals from that guy for various reasons that they might get. So anytime any of my, any women in my proximity, my wife or any of my female friends or anybody starts to tell me that uh, this person gives them, makes them feel in a way they don't like, that gives them that creepy vibe is something I pay a lot of attention to. Um, because I think that sometimes we as men don't listen the way we should. We don't realize that they're going to be getting, that, that guy's going to be sending us different signals than he's going to send somebody that he wants to prey on. And we should, uh, women really need to pay attention to those feelings and honor those feelings and trust them and learn how to be assertive and defend their boundaries with those things. And men need to learn how to pay attention to women um, when they start to point those things out because they're going to they're gonna get different different read than you will. I, I can attest to that. My wife has told me that in the past. She's like, there's something about this guy. Yep. And you know, I chose to believe differently and I paid the price later. And yep. it was so incredibly clear. And there's, there is, there's just like this innate, you know, probably evolution of this protection and this, this ability to see yeah. and to, 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 kind of feel that energy of like, this is not good. Yeah. So that's a, absolutely. that's a really great, a really great word. So when is the book released? The book Official. came out, uh, April 12th. So it's been okay. out, it's been out for a while. Yeah. And, um, let's go. Yeah. And so anybody can, anybody can order it now. It's on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indie share. Um, I think, you know, I'm sure you'll have the links there and then, yes, we will. Uh, yeah. And, and, uh, check it out. Yeah. Well, I, I want to say, um, one, you're doing phenomenal work in your gyms. That's, that's obvious. You don't grow like that. You don't have that happening without doing things right. And then, um, I am, uh, it's just really encouraging for me that there's men with your knowledge, your experience and your reach who are sharing truthful things and really helping educate people in things that they really need to be educated for. And, Something I talk about a lot is like, hey, guys, you need to be prepared. Mm -hmm. And that that is a proactive status. That is not a reactive status. Absolutely. And you don't 
that doesn't mean just owning a gun and knowing how to fire it. There's a lot of other steps in between. And uh, I think this is it. Yeah. One of the, one of the sayings we have at SBG, as far as one of our overall goals is to make good people more dangerous to bad people, which is the Mm -hmm. solution to this problem. Um, But the one thing that, you know, I kind of figured out over the years and that you're pointing to as well is making good people more dangerous to bad people doesn't just make people safer. I think in the long run, it also makes better people. It does. Yeah. Um, I love that saying. I've never heard it before, but I love it. I got to credit my, my friend, Paul Sharp for that. He came up with that, right. but it just fits it so well. Yeah, it does. Matt, it's been an absolute honor to have you on. Thank you for bringing your, your knowledge and your wisdom and your insight. Uh, I appreciate it beyond words. Thank and, you, Scott. Um, yeah. Uh, hey, everybody, like, just go order this right now. The Gift of Violence by Matt Thornton. And uh, just do yourself and your family a favor and get this in the hands of your wife. And if your kid's at the right age, get it in the hands of them and read it yourself. Uh, and uh, those, all of those, the links are in the show notes. So please, like, that's the biggest gift you can give us. You can give me as a listener of this podcast is supporting those who come on and share truth and hard, doing the hard work. Thank you for listening to the Brotherhood of Fatherhood podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends, your family, and follow us on social media. If you are a father, make sure you join our Facebook group, The Brotherhood of Fatherhood. Hit the subscribe button and tune in next time for more podcasts from The Brotherhood of Fatherhood.